read the Holy Scriptures together in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians 7. Let's read the first 17 verses of the chapter. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission, and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O, o man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches. We read the word of God that far. We consider this morning the Seventh Commandment and the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of that in Lord's Day 41. What doth the Seventh Commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is accursed of God, and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same and live chastely and temperately whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? 
Since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, he commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we consider the next commandment in the second table of God's law, which is the seventh commandment. And in the seventh commandment, God teaches us the duties that we owe to our spouse and to our other neighbors in connection with the whole area of marriage and sexuality. And this commandment pertains to us, then, whether we are still single or whether we are married. We have seen that in the second table of the law, God begins with the duties that we owe to our parents. Honor your father and your mother. Because our parents are our closest neighbors from the moment that we are born into this world. But the scriptures also teach in the book of Genesis that, generally speaking, children grow up, and when children grow up, they leave father and mother, and a husband cleaves to his wife, and a wife cleaves to her husband, and these two become one flesh in marriage. Not everyone gets married, but most people get married. And so the seventh commandment now confronts us with the duties that we owe to our closest neighbor, after we get married, and that neighbor is our spouse. But as I already mentioned, the Catechism indicates that this commandment also pertains to single people. Whether in holy wedlock or in single life, the Catechism says. And we're going to see, therefore, that the commandment, when it speaks to married people, says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But when it speaks to single people, it says, Thou shalt not commit fornication. And we need to understand the difference between those. And then positively, this commandment says to us, Thou shalt live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Because both our bodies and our souls are the temples of the Holy Ghost. Let's consider the command against adultery. First, that we are forbidden to commit sexual transgression. Secondly, required to live chastely and temperately. Finally, motivated by the love of Christ. In the actual commandment, as it appears in the law, God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. In the seventh commandment, God forbids husbands and wives to betray each other, to forsake each other, to abandon each other by entering into an intimate and sexual relationship with someone else. That's what God forbids. And God forbids that because in the beginning he made a male and a female, a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and he brought them together together in marriage, the first marriage, 
and they became husband and wife, one flesh. And God's design was that this relationship called marriage would be a union then of one man and one woman who would become one flesh for life until death. Therefore, God forbids adultery. Because adultery is the act of a married man or a married woman betraying our spouse for another person, going after another person, entering into an intimate and sexual relationship with someone else. That's adultery. And God forbids it. And God calls us to detest it. If a married person enters into a sexual relationship with another married person, that's called double adultery. If a married person enters into a sexual relationship with a single person, it's called single adultery. But in both cases, God detests it and forbids it. That's betrayal. Betrayal of one's spouse. It's a sin against our closest neighbor, our husband or our wife. Adultery includes the sin of divorce. Divorce is also betraying our spouse. It is leaving our spouse, to whom we are supposed to cleave until death. It is abandoning that spouse and generally going to marry someone else. When we get married, we take vows to each other to be faithful until death do us part. Until death do us part. Not until we get sick of each other, not until we get tired with each other, not until we are bored, but until death. That's the vow that we take. Divorce is a sin. It's an abandonment and betrayal of the vows that we took to our spouse. The Apostle Paul teaches us that God forbids divorce in the passage we read, starting at verse 10. He says, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And what he means is, the Lord Jesus Christ, he commanded us this when he was here on this earth. You can find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is what the Lord commanded. He said, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. Let not the wife depart from her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. He's saying, the Lord Jesus forbids divorce. You may not divorce your spouse. You may not depart, and you may not put away. That's forbidden by God. Now I know, the apostle says in verse 11, but and if she depart. And some would say that indicates that It is permissible for her to depart. Is that what the apostle is saying? But, and if she depart, what the apostle is mentioning there is the situation in which the husband has committed adultery. Even though he doesn't say that, our Lord Jesus Christ does say that in Matthew and Mark and Luke when he speaks this command. He says, except it be for fornication except it be for adultery. There is one ground for divorce. One ground. If your spouse commits adultery against you, then and only then 
may a husband divorce his wife or a wife divorce her husband. And that's what he's saying then, verse 11, when he says, but and if she depart, that is, if her spouse betrayed her and she decides to depart from him, and she has the right to do that, but then notice what he says, if she does, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So even if there is adultery, even if there is a legitimate divorce, she may not marry someone else. She must then live a single life or be reconciled to her husband. It is very, very clear there in verse 11. Remarriage is always adultery. Always. Because when we get married, we are married to that person until death. Only death dissolves that marriage bond. Only death. So even if there is a lawful divorce, we may not marry someone else. We may not enter into an intimate sexual relationship with someone else because then we commit adultery against our first and only spouse. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us that all uncleanness is accursed by God and therefore we must with all our hearts detest it. We must with all our hearts detest the very thought of adultery, the very thought of divorce, and the very thought of marrying someone else. But we must also with all our hearts detest those thoughts and desires within our hearts that lead to adultery. And the Catechism speaks of all unchaste words, thoughts, gestures, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. In Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28, our Lord Jesus Christ said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh at a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. We might never commit the outward act of adultery or divorce or remarriage, but Jesus says, don't even lust after another woman who is not your wife or another man who is not your husband in your heart. That's already adultery. And what we need to see here very practically, beloved, is that therefore we as Christians have to be very, very careful in the way we live. Very, very careful about what we look at, about what we watch, about what we fasten our eyes on. That means we ought not to be watching For example, movies that portray sexual activities between men and women who are not married to each other. Men and women, actors and actresses who are not married to each other, perhaps married to someone else or perhaps not married at all, but there they are, actors and actresses before the video camera, there on the screen for all the world to see and for all the world to enjoy engaging in sexual activities with each other. Should we be watching that? We need to remember, beloved, that's a perversion of God's good gift of romance, 
God's good gift of marriage, God's good gift of intimacy between a husband and wife, that's a good thing. That's a lovely thing, a holy thing. But there on the movies, when adultery is being acted out on the screen for the enjoyment of the world, that's a perversion. It's a distortion of what marriage is supposed to be. Because almost always in such movies, the the people are not only not married to each other, but even in the movie, they're not married to each other. Because the world doesn't want to portray holy and good things. The world portrays distortions. The world portrays perversions. And when we watch that, when we look at that and enjoy that, our minds are being distorted. Our minds are being perverted. Our expectations for marriage are being perverted. And as the Catechism says, whatever can entice us to these sexual transgressions, we must avoid. And when we fasten our eyes on that, does it not entice, does it not seduce and arouse and lead to all kinds of unchaste fantasies and lusts and actions and words which invariably harm our spouse or our future spouse. When we watch those perversions, when our minds are distorted, that ruins the sweetness of love that God intends for us to enjoy as husbands and wives in marriage. It spoils it. When we bring all of that garbage into our marriage. In Proverbs 5, the wise man writes this to the young son, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and our running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of waters in the street. Let them be only thine own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. That's God's design. Husbands, wives, rejoice with each other, but not with anyone else. Men, that means we must not look at other women to lust after them. Men, I ask you, is there a woman in your life right now who you find yourself looking at regularly and lusting after? Women, I ask you, is there a man in your life who is not your husband, who you find yourself daydreaming over, fantasizing about, lusting over? The Catechism teaches us we must detest that with all our hearts. That lust, that fantasizing, we must detest it with all our hearts. We must realize that those lusts and those desires for someone who is not our spouse are destructive, marriage-destroying desires that lead to adultery. You cannot play with fire and not be burned. If you play with fire, you will be burned. Catechism, the scriptures teach us that in the book of Proverbs. 
And we need to remember the untold damage that will be done to our wife or our husband, not to mention our little children and their tender little hearts when adultery takes place. But the Catechism teaches us this commandment does not only speak to married people, but also to single people. And when it does, the Lord says, thou shalt not commit fornication. Adultery is the sin of married people. Fornication is the sin of single people. That means God forbids us to enter into any kind of intimate sexual relationship before marriage. That means when we are dating as boyfriends and girlfriends, God forbids us to enter into any kind of sexual relationship or activity with each other while we are dating. That's fornication. He forbids us to speak enticing words to each other, to try to seduce each other, to cross the line, to pressure each other to cross the line, and to engage in sexual activities that end in full fornication. God forbids that. It means that God forbids that we go to a harlot. The word for fornication is rooted in the Greek word that means harlot. Fornication was originally especially the sin of going to a harlot. And in the days of the Bible, it was in the pagan temples that a man could go to the heathen place and find a harlot there and go into her and pay her and enjoy a sexual experience. Beloved, especially brothers, we need to remember something when it comes to that. On the one hand, the Bible describes the harlot as a strange woman who flatters with her lips, who seduces with her beauty, and who pretends to love you as she tries to draw you into her house. But we need to remember that the harlot does not love you. She wants your money. She does not love you. And then on the other hand, we need to remember this. Especially today, when we don't have pagan temples with harlots anymore, but there are still harlots. Because the institution has continued for thousands of years. Why? Simple rule of supply and demand. When there is a demand, there will be a supply. Who creates that demand? Where does that demand come from? That demand comes from men with their sexual lusts. If there is no more demand, there will be no more supply. There will be no more harlots. We ought to remember this too. The harlot does not love us. She wants our money. But she's not going to be able to keep much of that money. Most of that money is going to go to ruthless, wicked men. The ruthless, wicked men who probably kidnapped her or deceived her or manipulated her and forced her to work for them, almost invariably. Almost invariably. What we need to understand then is going to a harlot is a sin against the harlot. 
And the same applies to pornography, which you think you can do in the safety and the quietude of your room. But when you watch it, free or not free, you sin against the people on that screen. Those are real people. And statistics have shown that most of the people who are engaged in that lifestyle live miserable lives. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, their lives are complete misery, even though they look so otherwise, perhaps. It's a sin against those people. Fornication is forbidden. It's a sin against our own bodies. It's a sin against our future spouse if we're not married. It's a sin against our spouse if we are married. It's a sin against the person with whom we commit fornication. In the chapter before the one that we read, 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle urgently beseeches the congregation at Corinth. Chapter 6, verse 18, he says, Flee! Fornication. Flee. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then in chapter 7, concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Men, he says, don't touch a woman. But to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. He says, to be quite honest with you, I think it would be better if you would be single like me. Verse 7. But... Everyone has his proper gift. And so he says to the unmarried, it is good if you abide like me in single life, but if you cannot contain, then marry, because it is better to marry than to burn. Don't burn. If you burn, then get married. Search for a spouse. Pray for a spouse and get married. Although even then, You ought not to burn toward your spouse either. The positive requirement of this commandment is that we live chastely and temperately in holy wedlock or in single life. That's why I say we ought not even to burn toward our spouse. Because even in holy wedlock, we are to be chaste and temperate. We're going to see what that means in a minute. So first of all, in single life, we are to be chaste and temperate. That means that we, when we are single people, we preserve our bodies and souls pure and holy as long as we are single. It means that we remain a virgin until we get married. That's what God requires. Now the world mocks at that. The world scoffs. The world ridicules the idea of remaining a virgin until you get married. 
doesn't matter. That's what God requires. And we ultimately shouldn't care what they think. We care what God thinks. That's all. Chastity is what God requires. Chastity is the virtue of remaining pure, maintaining purity, walking in purity, purity of thought, purity of desire, purity of words, purity of actions and gestures. The Catechism mentions gestures and words and actions. They are to be chaste, pure, when it comes to this whole area of life. Temperance is the virtue of maintaining control, discipline, self-control, self-discipline, self-denial when it comes to this whole area of life. Chastity, temperance in single life means we walk in purity as a virgin, a chaste virgin devoted to God until we get married, if we get married. And I say the world mocks that. And they say, what a boring life. How boring. It's not boring. It's not. It's not boring, I say, for the godly Christian young person who loves the Lord because of his love for me. It's not boring to the godly young person who finds their greatest pleasure in the knowledge that God loves me, in the knowledge that God cares for me, in the knowledge that God is my God, in the knowledge of my Christian family that surrounds me, my Christian friends that surround me. The Christian godly young person isn't bored with living the chaste, temperate life until marriage. Because the Christian young person takes to heart what Paul says in Philippians 4, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, think on those things. Think on those things. Don't pollute your mind with all kinds of impure thoughts and desires, think on the things that are pure. Think on things that are lovely, true, good. That's a great pleasure for the child of God. The child of God blocks out the ridicule of the world then and is devoted to the Lord. Living chaste and temperate in dating means that a boyfriend has to love his girlfriend, and a girlfriend has to love her boyfriend. Love them. I don't mean fall in love. There's no command to fall in love. We may or we may not fall in love when we're dating someone. But the command is to love. Love your neighbor you're dating. Love him, love her as yourself. And that means that as a boyfriend, I should not pressure my girlfriend. As a girlfriend, I should not entice my boyfriend. As a boyfriend and girlfriend, we should have 
clearly defined boundaries. And that's out of love for each other. Because if we cross those boundaries, and then we don't marry that person, we cause harm to ourselves, to that person, and to our future spouse. And if we do marry that person, we still cause harm because we live with regrets and shame. But in the second place, positively, God requires us to live chastely and temperately in married life, in holy wedlock. In Hebrews 13, verse 4, the apostle says that marriage is honorable in all, and the marriage bed undefiled. The marriage bed is a good thing, a good gift of God to husbands and wives. Not defiled, not impure, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That's impure. Husbands, this commandment requires that we love our wives, and we love them as we love our own bodies more than our own bodies. We nourish them and we cherish them. We value them. We encourage them. We lead them. We comfort them. We provide for them. We protect them. Wives, this commandment means that we love our husbands. We love them. We respect them. We honor them as the leader that God has given to us, as our head. We give to them godly, Submission. Husbands, we have a debt to pay to our wives. And wives, you have a debt to pay to your husbands. Look at verse 3 of the passage we read. He says, To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman her own husband, and then let the husband... Render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. That means husbands have to give to their wife the affection that they owe to them. They have a debt to give affection to them, and also the wife has a debt to give affection, benevolence, affection to her husband. Verse 4, the wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. That word power could be translated authority or rights. He's saying, husbands, you don't have exclusive rights to your own body. Wives, you don't have exclusive rights to yours. You are one flesh in marriage. You share those rights. And then in verse 5, defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time. Defraud means rob. Don't rob each other. If you have a debt to pay, you have to pay it. If you don't pay it, you're robbing. You're engaging in robbery. You're taking from your spouse something that is owed to them. He says, don't do that. Except it be with consent, unless you as husband and wife agree to abstain for a time to give yourselves to spiritual activities. But then he says, come back together again, come back together, so that Satan will not tempt you for your incontinency, that is, for your lack of self-control, 
come back together again. This passage has been abused. Probably especially by husbands. This passage has been abused by those who have taken it and used it as a biblical proof to force or pressure their spouse to do what they want. That's not the intention of the passage. The passage does not give us a right to force or pressure our wife or our husband to do things that we want them to do for us. That's a selfishness and a pride that is despicable. When we take the scriptures to try to carry out our selfish desires, how wretched. That's not the point of the passage. To say, well, you owe me something. You have a debt to pay to me. No. The point of the passage is not that she has a debt to you or he has a debt to you, but the point is to point it at yourself. I, I have a debt to her. And we must never think any farther than that about her debt or his debt. It's my debt. What do I owe? I owe affection and more affection and more affection and more affection. I constantly owe this affection to my wife and to my husband. That's my debt. Don't rob her, Paul says. Don't rob her of that. Don't rob him of that. I always emphasize that in premarital counseling. You can imagine how an abusive husband would take hold of a text like this. Or even a non-abusive husband, but a selfish one. That's a resting of the scriptures and using them for our selfish desires. The scriptures always, always, always emphasize love, not selfishness. Love. Love your husband. Love your wife. In our selfishness, we always focus on our rights, our bodies, our needs. But love focuses on her needs, her rights, her desires, and his. In this area of life, in marriage, a lot of love is required. A lot of love. Love, which we know from this same epistle, is kind. Love, which is patient. Patient. So patient. Love, which is gentle. Love, which opens up one's heart and shares and talks and communicates and is honest. Love that has a firm commitment to work together at this. To work together to please each other and to please God. And in that love, husbands, we must take the lead. 
we must take the lead. Doesn't the Bible emphasize that? It always says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. But husbands, love your wives. That's where it starts. That's God's order. That's first. That means, husbands, your love, just like God's love for us, which is first. Your life, your love must be first and constant and faithful and patient and gentle. And when that is going on, the beauty of God's design is that your wife is going to love you too. And your wife is going to see in you a man who's worthy of respect, a man who's worthy of love. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. But God calls us to love our wives and to keep that as our focus. And that will make it easier for our wives to love us, to respect us, to honor us, yes, and to submit to us. What a beautiful thing when you have a Christian marriage, when you have a husband and a wife working together, loving each other, growing together. A marriage like that is a marriage not marked by gross unchastity and gross intemperance, but it's marked by purity, the lovely purity of the marriage bed and the lovely temperance of a man and woman who have control and exercise love. How can we be motivated? Only by the love of Jesus Christ. How can we be motivated? in a world full of sexual sin and temptation all around us. It seems almost impossible, doesn't it? And we too, by nature, are adulterers and adulteresses. Has any of us listened to the sermon up to this point and come to the conclusion that we don't do any of those things? That we're totally chaste and temperate. We're all guilty. We're all guilty of enticing and being enticed, of looking and lusting, unchaste gestures and words and thoughts and desires. And that's because of our old man of sin in us that is prone by nature to all manner of wickedness. And perhaps sometimes we even groan and sigh because of that flesh. What can motivate us? We know that if we do this, we're going to hurt somebody. We know that. Does that motivate us? The only thing that really can motivate us 
is the love of Christ. The love of Christ. So many of these sins arise out of the selfish desire to be loved. But we look for it in the wrong way and in the wrong place. What's the solution? You are loved. You are loved by Christ. Remember that story when the Pharisees came to Jesus, dragging a woman caught in the very act of adultery, John chapter 8. And Jesus was on the ground with his finger doodling in the sand. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Can you believe it? In the very act. And Jesus said to them, He who is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all turned around and walked away. Because they had done the same thing. And then Jesus looked up at the woman standing there in front of him. And he said, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the love of Christ to us sinners. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. I forgive you. I forgive you, Jesus says, because in my love for you, I died for you on the cross to make you my wife, my chaste, pure wife. I died on the cross to cleanse you of all your filthiness, of all of your guilt and all of your shame, to wipe it away, to purge it, to forgive it, to justify you and to sanctify you, and to make you a beautiful, gorgeous wife for myself. And I'm going to come again and take you to be my wife for all eternity, because I love you. That's why I gave myself for you, and that's why I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He says, go and sin no more. That's the motivation. The motivation is, Christ doesn't condemn me. Christ loves me with an everlasting faithful love. And I want to love him back. I want to serve him. I want to please him. And that builds up within the soul and the heart of the child of God a loathing of all sexual transgressions, all of them. And it stirs up through the power of the Holy Spirit, the holy desire and ability to forsake our sins, to turn to live a pure and chaste life more and more. May God grant to us such chastity and purity that we might live for the love of our neighbor, and the glory of our God. Amen. Father, we give thee thanks 
for thy law and for thy gospel. Without thy gospel, thy law is dreadful to us. Thy law condemns us, accuses us. We have come to see our sins. But we thank thee that thou hast done that to humble us, that we might hear that gospel and rejoice in our Savior. Grant us now through the power that we are not condemned the ability to go and sin no more, to fight, to flee, to break free from any sexual sins that cleave to us, and to live in love for our husband and wife